So last week we had the great uh, joy of being able to uh, witness three people as, who are from our church family being baptized to uh, proclaim their trust in Jesus and to celebrate that new life. Uh, two of them were from uh, our kids' church. Uh, and this, one of my favorite moments of this was we brought up all the kids' church kids. And so this front uh, two, three rows here were just filled with kids. They're sitting on the, on the floor in front, uh, just packed out. And it was a, was a reminder to me that we have the opportunity to pour into uh, the younger generations to help them experience what it means to have a relationship uh, with Jesus. So this is a really uh, big part of our heartbeat as a church. We want to impact the next generations uh, for Jesus. Kids matter to us. Students matter to us. And uh, I don't know if you realize this, but there are over 2,000 students who go to just the Ludington area school. So that's not even counting homeschool or Covenant or Scottville schools. 2,000 students who go to school right within two miles of where we're standing today. So we see this as a huge uh, opportunity for us to uh, pour out into the community to bring the good news of Jesus to the coming generations. And one of the things that we're really excited about toward that, that vision that, that God has given us, that heartbeat that we have for the younger generations, is that we are right now in the final planning phases of a complete renovation in the lower level for uh, kids and student space. So we've been working hard to get to this point. Um, the details are starting to come together now, uh, and we'll be able to share more in the coming weeks. But here's what I want you to do for right now. I want you to pray alongside of us that God would uh, use us to effectively bring the good news of Jesus to these younger generations. We, we don't see them as the future of the church. We see them as part of our church family today, an integral part of who we are, and our heart is tied to them. So we want to make disciples of all ages, but in particular, we have a heart for these next generations coming up. So would you join us in, in praying that God would uh, help us to build those relationships and to serve especially the students and the kids uh, in our community? We're going to take the opportunity right now to, to pray toward that end and then prepare to, to uh, study God's Word together. Please join me in prayer. God, we thank you that you love your people. I thank you for creating us in the image of God. I thank you for sending Jesus to rescue and to redeem. I pray that we would be a people who, who know Jesus deeply ourselves, whose lives are transformed by, by experiencing him. And then out of that transformation, I pray that we would go out into our community to be able to tell others about the great news of, of who you are and all that you've done for us. We think in particular about uh, the youngest generations in our community in Ludington and Mason County. God, for so many, they, they have no idea who Jesus is, no idea what a real vibrant relationship with him would, would look like. And you've given us a, a heart and a passion as a church to be part of, of you bringing good news to them. I pray that you would make us effective in that. And God, right now, as we open your word together, I pray that you would use it to help us to know Jesus at a, at a deeper level this morning. We pray this in his name, asking for the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Uh, last summer, I took up photography as, as a, a new hobby. So I got a new camera, and I got a new lens, and I took over 4,000 pictures uh, over the summer. It was lots of fun. Um, I'm, I'm very much a novice when it comes to this, so I made lots of mistakes playing with different settings and, and messing up exposure and color and all sorts of things like that. Uh, but it was a lot of fun to get to try this out. 
And then at the end of the summer, I decided to take it to the next step and enter into the world of uh, photo editing. And what I discovered is that the software for this stuff is incredibly powerful. And what you're able to do to manipulate images and to draw out different features through color and highlighting and shadows and contrast, all of this stuff can, can totally bring an image to a new level. So everything that you see published has been gone through some kind of processing like this. You, you don't see pictures that are straight out of a camera lens as it was taken, as the photographer took it. You, you saw through this, that's the final product. That's what you see in anything that is published. Now, you have a philosophical choice here as you're editing a photo. You can use this software to enhance the photo, the image, to look more like what you actually saw, to offer, offer kind of subtle changes in this. Or you can really heavily edit it to kind of uh, capture a particular look or a feel that you're going for. So this image obviously is, is very highly stylized. That's not what the person saw on the right-hand side. And sometimes you can get really crazy with it. I'll give you my favorite example is this one, like this kid. Yeah, now I'm looking cool because I've got that motorcycle that I grabbed off a stock photo somewhere. So I was looking at these things and thinking, okay, if, if that's the power of these programs, maybe I should try this out too. So I took this photo of, of a moose during the summer. As you can see, it's not a great picture. It's, it's overexposed, the colors are washed out. And so I, okay, I'm gonna get some photo editing software and I'm gonna make this look good. So see how I did. <laughs> Boom. You've never seen a moose look that good, have you? It's, it's not my photo. Here's why I bring this up. We can do the same thing when it comes to Jesus. Right? We, can, we can apply a filter to him, we can manipulate an image and, and have a, a Jesus that we like a little bit more. So we, we take the things that we like about Jesus, we highlight those things, we put those at the forefront, and then the things that we find out about Jesus that we're not really so keen on, we, we'll minimize those, we'll change the levels, and then, and then you've got a more palatable picture of, of who Jesus is. You've, you've filtered him out, and, and now you've got a Jesus that you like a little bit more. But of course that won't do. We end up filtering Jesus, and in doing so, we, we tame him. And what happens then is that we lose the true beauty and the true glory of who he is. We've been in this book of John together. It's, it's a gospel. It's a biography of the life of Jesus. And it's written by someone who was there with him, a firsthand witness, who lived with him, who walked with him, who saw his miracles. And John is convinced that Jesus is the one and only Word of God, the Son who was with God in the beginning. He is convinced that if we believe in Him, we will have life, eternal life, life to the full. But here's the thing, if that's going to happen, if we're going to get that life that John is talking about, we need to see Jesus as He actually is, Jesus unfiltered. And so today we're going to see an example of that and, and to draw out how important that is for us today too, to have Jesus unfiltered, not manipulated like we want him to be, but Jesus as he actually is. So grab a Bible. We're going to look at John chapter 6 together. If you brought one, that's great. If not, uh, grab one from the chair rack in front of you. John 6 verse 1 is found on page 1656 of the uh, chair Bibles there, the church Bibles. So John 6, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 24 of this chapter this morning. We're going to see two different uh, miraculous signs that Jesus does, and one of them is for a crowd, and then the other is for Jesus' disciples. So let's start with the first one. The first sign that we see here moves a crowd to action. Here's the setup. John 6, verse 1. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is, the Sea of Tiberias. 
And a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs he had performed by healing the sick. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover festival was near. John, throughout this book, keeps talking about how much attention Jesus is getting, and this time that's setting up for what's about to happen. Verse 5. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, Where should we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered him, It would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. But how far will they go among so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, and they sat down. About 5,000 men were there. So the setup here is doing two things. It's on the one hand building anticipation, but on the other hand it's showing the impossibility. So it's building anticipation because the crowd is here because they've seen Jesus do amazing supernatural things. They've seen him heal all sorts of different sicknesses. And so there's anticipation that Jesus has power. That's why they're coming to him. And even this little hint that John gives us, Jesus knew what he was going to do. So there's an anticipation that's built up. Something's going to happen here. But even as it's highlighting the, the anticipation, there's also the impossibility, and that is brought to the very forefront. Jesus, in, in asking the question, where are we going to find food for these people, it's like he's wanting the disciples to basically say out loud, yeah, this is impossible. I mean, think about it. In, in rough terms, there are 5,000 people here, and that's just men. That's exclusive of women and children. You add them in, so it's a much bigger number. So, so picture it like this. They need to feed everybody in Ludington. And they've got no budget, and they've got no mire. So Philip, one of the disciples, is, is listening to this, and he points out the obvious. Okay, you could spend half a year's worth of money on this, and everyone gets one bite. It's not going to be enough food. It's impossible. Andrew, another one of the disciples, he gives an update on available resources. Well, turns out there's this one kid, and he brought a lunch. But he's got five barley loaves, and we're not talking like big, nice loaves that you might get at the grocery store. We're talking like pitas. Think like a pita. And, and he's got two fish. And again, he's not carrying like big salmon around that can go feed a bunch of people. He's like got sardines. Right? So this is the available resources. This is what he's got. And then so Andrew says, okay, well, you've got this whole crowd. This one little lunch isn't going to get us very far. So let's take stock of what we've got so far. 5,000 men plus women and children. You've got no budget. You've got no mire. You've got five pitas and you've got two sardines. And Jesus says, perfect, have them sit down, we're about to eat. Now, some of you have put on banquets of, of lesser amounts of people than this, and, and if you've done that kind of planning, you're already cringing because you know this is not going to go well. You know the amount of logistical planning that goes into just getting the prepared food to 5,000 people, let alone actually coming up with the resources for that actual food when you don't have it. But here's what happens, verse 11. Jesus then took the loaves gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, Gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled twelve baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. So Jesus takes this meager little offering, almost nothing, and he offers an abundant meal. 5,000 men plus women and children 
eat as much as they can to their fill. And then to cap it off, Jesus sends his disciples to go pick up the leftovers. Now, keep in mind, these were guys who were skeptical. They didn't think this was going to be possible at all, even with much more resources than they had. So all these unbelieving disciples, 12 of them, each of them gets to carry their own basketfuls of the evidence that they were wrong. Now, probably this is also symbolic of the 12 tribes of Israel. So God is showing that he provides for all of his people. And that's what we're seeing here. And I, I don't know if you've had an experience like this, but, but I've, seen, I've heard so many stories of God doing things like this. He comes through in unexpected ways right when he's needed. So I was talking to a friend of mine named Jeff a few months ago, and he, and he was telling us this story about when he was in grad school. He and his wife were both full-time students and working part-time. So as you can imagine, money was pretty tight. They were making it. Things were okay, as long as there weren't any unexpected costs. And then their car broke down. And they took it into the shop. They got an estimate over $800 in repairs. And they're like, this is not good. The stress level's rising. They're not sure how they're going to be able to afford this. They need the car to be fixed so they can get to where they need to go. But they can't afford it. Now, meanwhile, they had been um, part of this group. They'd been leading a group in their church, and, and the, tr- the group didn't know anything about the, the car breaking down, but, but they were, uh, wanted to do something to express their pr- appreciation for Jeff and his wife. And so they came up with this idea of doing a money treat, you know, kind of this little thing, and you kind of clip dollar bills to it, and, and that's, your, that's your gift. Because they figured, you know, they're in grad school, probably things are tight, this would be a good way of showing appreciation. So they present them the gift. And of course, they're blown away. This is a really generous thing. And so they bring it home and then they start counting the money. And it's within $1 of the amount of their, the cost of the car repair. Within $1 of the exact amount of that. And they think, God is so good. Like he knows, we worry about this stuff, but he knows exactly what we need and exactly when we need it. They weren't expecting this and the group didn't know anything about it, but there it was within a dollar of the amount. So Jeff said you know, he, had to, he had to tell his group this, so he went back to the group and he, he told them, it was within a dollar of what we needed. It was an amazing thing. And he's praising God for this. And, and then one of the guys in the group started laughing. And he said, well, you know, we, we had set aside a, a, a kind of stack of cash to give to that. Uh, but then one night we had a babysitter come over. We didn't have any other cash at home, so I actually stole $20 from what we were going to give you and I gave it to her and then I never was able to return it back. So actually that, that amount would have been 20 more, but, but you know, God worked even through those circumstances to get it to that exact level. And it was just this amazing picture for him of God providing for his family right when they needed it most. And Jesus is showing her that, that that's what God does. God takes care of his people. Even when we have no idea how it can happen, he takes care of us. He watches over us. He provides for us. But there's another theme here that the text is drawing out. How are the people going to respond? They see this happening. What's their reaction? Verse 14. After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, Surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. So Jesus has just shown his miraculous provision for his people. It's a miracle, and that the miracle is designed to be a sign to show he really is the one and only. It's confirming his identity. And the people see this, and they recognize that it is a sign, and, and it works. It shows them who he is. And so they come to understand partly the identity of Jesus. He must be the prophet that God had promised. And this was pointing back to some of God's promises from, from generations earlier. Deuteronomy 18:15. God had said that he would send a prophet, and the people were to listen to him. He would lead the people. And so they're, they're listening to this, 
and they're seeing Jesus, and they're thinking, he must be that guy. Now, they had all sorts of things that they had attached to that prophet. They thought he would be a king, a leader, and, and, and they tied all of their political aspirations to this coming prophet. So they've just witnessed this miracle. They've eaten food. They've, they've firsthand seen the supernatural power of Jesus. And then all of their expectations of this coming prophet king then fall on Jesus. So they're, they're ready to get a crown, put it on his head, make him king, and they're ready to be his army. They've got 5,000 men right here. Like, give us some swords. Let's, let's go. Let's kick the Romans out. It's a really exciting time for them. All of our hopes and dreams are coming true right now. But Jesus withdraws because he's not going to allow them to set his agenda. And here's where we start to see the, the inadequacy of the crowd's response. They come very close on his identity. They recognize that he is the one that God had promised. He is the prophet who is to come. But they've missed something about what that prophet would really be and what that prophet would actually do. So it's true that, that Jesus is king. I mean, we've got a crown up here for a reason. He, he is the one and only, the son of God, the one who is rightly king. But they have taken their expectation and twisted God's promises, seen it through the filter of what they really want in their hearts, and they refuse to let Jesus set the agenda for his ministry and who he is. So their political aspirations have become so prominent that they're now trying to co-opt God's promises for what they really want. They filter Jesus, they filter these, these Old Testament promises and expectations through their own heart and desires, and so they miss who Jesus really is. But it doesn't work like that. Jesus won't be manipulated he won't be filtered. He, he is the one and only, and he is going to show who he is without being co-opted to other purposes. So this sign is, is really powerful. It stirs the crowd to action, but at the same time, you see how their response really is inadequate. By having their own dreams wrapped up in this, they've missed part of who Jesus is, and they don't allow him to show who he is unfiltered. So this first sign is really powerful. And the second sign we see is going to leave his disciples speechless. Verse 16. When evening came, his disciples went down to the lake where they got into a boat and set off across the lake for Capernaum. By now it was dark and Jesus had not yet joined them. A strong wind was blowing and the waters grew rough. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water, and they were terrified. But he said to them, it is I, don't be afraid. Then they were willing to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. So this first sign was for a whole crowd. 5,000 people got to experience this. But this second sign is just for these 12 disciples, and it is awe-inspiring. There's nothing that could have prepared them for this moment. They see Jesus walking on the water. Now, it's, it's really fascinating to hear how modern people have tried to uh, understand what happened here in natural terms. There have been all sorts of ingenious suggestions about what really happened here. So some have suggested that Jesus is actually walking on a sandbar right below the surface of the water. But of course, you have to remember that half the guys in the boat were fishermen on the Sea of Galilee. They would have known this sea, and they wouldn't have been very impressed if they saw him walking on a sandbar. Others have suggested that that maybe he was actually on the shore and there was some kind of optical illusion that made it look like he was walking on the water. 
But again, these guys are seasoned fishermen who, who know the area, that they're not going to be impressed by that. Besides, they're two to three miles out onto the lake already. My favorite suggestion is, is this group of scholars who have suggested that maybe with just the right conditions, a thin layer of ice could have formed on part of the Sea of Galilee. Jesus was actually walking on the ice toward them on the boat. I saw Mythbusters on this, and they were, they were trying to figure out how to, to give some kind of contraption in your feet to be able to walk on water, and they just got wet. Like They couldn't find, figure out how to do it. All these different things, and they just got soaked. So here's the thing. This is impossible. That's the bottom line. What Jesus has done here is impossible. If we don't believe that Jesus actually walked on water, we would do better to be intellectually honest and say, well, we just don't believe what John is saying here, rather than trying to come up with a natural explanation of it. See, when it comes down to it, we have to decide whether or not we think that the supernatural is possible. If we come to this book with a firmly formed set of opinions on this can happen, this cannot happen, we're going to be incredibly frustrated by the book of John. Because the major thing that he's telling us is that Jesus changes everything. I mean, go back to the very beginning of this book in John chapter 1. Think about what he said there. The Word became flesh, the one who is in very nature God, who was there in the very beginning before anything was created, who was with God in very nature God. He came down and became an actual human. He took on flesh. The Word became flesh. We don't have any category for understanding that right? Our minds are simply too feeble to really grasp that in a full way. But, but if what John is saying is true, that the Word became flesh, then that changes everything. That means that all of our categories are, are just in upheaval. We are shaken. Our ideas of what is possible and what is not possible have to be totally rethought if what he is saying is true. When John was there, he saw it with his own eyes. He saw Jesus feed 5,000 people with one boy's lunch. He was there in the boat. He saw Jesus walking on the Sea of Galilee, walking on the water. And it totally changed his life forever because he came to understand that Jesus really is divine. This is absolutely impossible unless Jesus truly is the Son of God, the Word who became flesh. And you can imagine, the only thing that you can do in response to this is just bow in awe. And that's what the disciples do. I love how little John says about their response. He says they're terrified, they're frightened, and then Jesus gives them words of assurance. They let them in the boat, but that's the only thing we hear about them. You, you can imagine that they are just speechless. And they haven't understood this full thing. They're, they're spending time with Jesus. They're getting little pictures of who he is, but they're still trying to figure out who he is. And this, they don't have any category for what has just happened here. It's like if you were trying to teach second graders advanced math or calculus. You could have the best explanation possible, the most concrete, uh, beautiful explanation of derivatives and integrals and all that kind of stuff. But there's no way a second grader is going to be able to understand that. They simply don't have the categories for it. They're still working on addition and subtraction, the basic building points of, of math. There's no way that they haven't even started graphing, let alone be able to understand what is being talked about with, with advanced math. They're, the categories, they just can't contain the concepts of that. That's kind of what hap is happening with the disciples here. They're learning more and more about who Jesus is, but, but he just blows their mind here. He, here's someone who's walking on the water. I mean, you, you can understand someone maybe healing someone. That's still a big deal. But, you know, maybe they've seen some people get well, and maybe you could try to make up something about that. But someone walking on water, what do you do with that? He must be the Son of God. It shakes everything up. Meanwhile, the crowd is still waiting. Verse 22, 
The next day, the crowd that had stayed on the opposite shore of the lake realized that only one boat had been there and that Jesus had not entered it with his disciples, but that they had gone away alone. Then some boats from Tiberias landed near the place where the people had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. Once the crowd realized that neither Jesus nor his disciples was there, they got into the boats and went to Capernaum in search of Jesus. I really feel for the crowd. They're so confused, right? Jesus is here. He's gone. We were going to make him king. Then he left. Like, what is going on here? They're so confused. I mean, the good side of what they're doing is that they're actively searching after Jesus. We saw this at the beginning, verse 2. They're looking for him. They're following him. And the end in verse 24 here, they're searching for him. So at the bookends of this passage, they're active in pursuit of Jesus. That's a really good thing. And yet we've seen that, that their understanding of him is, is totally deficient. They've gotten part of it, but it's so skewed because it's wrapped up in their own desires for who this king might be that they miss out on his actual identity. And this is the point that I want to dwell on. As we think about what it means for us to, to interact with, with John 6 today, this is the question I want us to, to ponder, to recognize that there is this human tendency to make Jesus more palatable to ourselves, to subtly shift the image of who he is. I read a quote that put it like this. God created man in his own image, and man, being a gentleman, returned the favor. In other words, what religion is at its worst is just us coming up with ideas of what we want God to be like, and we worship that picture of God. We make God after our own image. And we have to admit that that there is this tendency in every one of us. This can happen among followers of Jesus. This can happen in the church. So let me give you just a, a kind of a visible representation of, of what this would look like. Take a look at how Jesus is portrayed in, in different cultures around the world. I mean, look at these different images and see the, the difference uh, among them. Do you see what happens? Each culture tends to think of Jesus looking like us. And it, I'm not too worked up about how it looks on a piece of art, but I do think this points out how subtle our thinking can be manipulated about Jesus in, in our minds. See, this is the really important part. We can do the same thing as the crowd. We have an idea of this is what I want in my life, and I'm going to add Jesus to that thing. Jesus is going to help me get what I've already wanted. And I don't know if you know this, but Jesus has been variously appropriated by all sorts of different groups as being in favor of their party or their group. So Jesus has been uh, portrayed as a social revolutionary. He's been portrayed as a feminist or an environmentalist or a capitalist. He's been portrayed as a Democrat or a Republican or a communist. He's been portrayed as a proponent of slavery. He's been portrayed as a means to health and prosperity. So we have these dreams, we have these desires in our hearts, and, and we can suddenly try to apply that filter to Jesus, and suddenly, hey, he's on my side. He wants what I want. So we kind of baptize our dreams with Jesus. So if we see that happening around us, we see the crowd doing that, we see modern examples, this means that we need to be introspective and to examine our own hearts. So I want to challenge you to ask yourself the question, what filter am I putting on Jesus? How am I trying to manipulate the image of who he is to fit what I want anyway? We would be naive to think that we are immune to this tendency. I mean, every one of us is, is human. Every one of us is imperfect. We have these things in our hearts. What's important is for us to recognize what those things are so that we can fight those with the truth of who the Bible actually says Jesus is. 
So if you don't know what your tendency is, like where you tend to skew Jesus, then you need to ask God. I would encourage you to spend some time alone with him asking for the Holy Spirit to show you where you are tending to skew Jesus, how you are changing, trying to manipulate him to fit what you actually want rather than allowing him to set the agenda and allowing him to show you who he is. And this is also showing us why it's so important for us to get into God's Word. The reason that we're reading this book of John together is so that we can see. Here's someone who spent time with Jesus. Hear the words of Jesus. Let's get him unfiltered so that can correct our, our misconceptions of who he is. Get in here. Ask questions. Dig deeper. And then coming out of that, coming out of understanding how we tend to apply a filter to Jesus to make it more palatable to ourselves is the follow-up question. Am I willing to allow Jesus to transform my dreams? It's one of the big problems with the crowd. They dreamed of, of, of a political autonomy for the people of Israel. They, they had some, some good understanding of, of God's promises. They knew that he was sending a saving king to them, but their desire for their nation was so twisted and, and so caught up with their own political ambitions that they didn't allow Jesus to set the agenda for that. See, it's a very different thing for us to come to Jesus and say, this is what I want, please make this happen, versus coming to him and saying, please change my heart so that I want what you want more than anything. I remember when I was in, in high school, uh, I'd always gone to church, I was part of a youth group, I would have said that God was the most important thing to me. But when I, when I thought about what I really wanted from life, I basically thought of the American dream. I want a nice house, I want a pretty wife, I want a nice car, I want to have a good job, I want to have plenty of money. That's what I want. That's what my heart is drawn to. And so that's what I tried to do. I tried to, okay, that's what I want, and then I'm going to add Jesus to that mix, and maybe Jesus will get me those things. But then coming to recognize that, that that's, an, that's not enough. It, it's not enough to live for just the American dream. And cars break down and, and rust. Houses are money pits. If that's where all of my passion and, and energy, if that's what's driving my life, then, then I'm living for something that's far too weak of a dream because the whole thing can fall apart. See, here's the thing. What God wants for us is so much more beautiful and so much more powerful than our wildest dreams of what's possible. I want you to think for just a minute about what, what Jesus offers us. Think about the image of what he was saying to the woman at the well. He, he said that he is able to offer us living water that satisfies forever. That is like nothing in our experience. Everything in our experience tends to fade over time. There is diminishing returns. That you take the, the first bite of that meal and it's delicious and you can't wait to eat more, but then it tastes a little less good and a little less good and then suddenly you're full and it actually doesn't taste very good at all. Everything in our life is like that. It's new, it's flashy, it's exciting at the outset, but then over time it wanes, it fades. It doesn't give us the same, uh, the same satisfaction. We don't know anything like what Jesus is talking about. Something that is satisfying, not just in the moment, not just tomorrow, not just for a week, not just for decades, satisfying eternally, forever. And this is so powerful. What he's offering us is so powerful. He says it's living water that, that works in us and becomes a spring leading to eternal life. I, I have to admit, I, I, there's no way I can describe this in adequate terms. I, I can't even conceptualize it in my own mind. This is so far beyond anything that we have ever experienced. 
So here's my challenge. Don't settle for less. Don't have your dreams and come to Jesus for those dreams. This is what I want. Instead, see who he really is. Recognize that what he gives us is far greater than anything we could think of for ourselves. And accept that gift of life, living water, satisfying forever for us. Pray with me. God, we thank you for this promise that sounds too good to be true. It's beyond anything we've, we've ever experienced in our lives. I pray that by the power of your Spirit, you would shake up our categories. I think of the disciples in that boat seeing Jesus walking across the water toward them. How can they possibly deal with this? Speechless before the Son of God. I pray that this week you would make us speechless before Jesus. May we be in awe of him and his beauty and his glory. May we bow before him and accept from him the greatest gift possible, living water, eternal life in your son. We pray this in his name, for his glory. Amen.